So. Thank you. Thank you, guys. Thank you. You, you may be seated. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, okay, completely unnecessary, but thank you so much. Well, welcome you guys to Chi Alpha. I'm assuming you guys know who we are based on that, so that was really sweet of you. Um, but if you don't know, my name is Casey, and this is my husband, John, and we're both... <laughs> We're both associate pastors here at Chi Alpha, and we're really excited to get to share with you guys tonight. Yeah, it's really good. So before we hop into the message, we thought it might be fun to share a short story with each of you. So last April, it was a cold and windy night, and we had gone to Des Moines to celebrate a few things with Casey's parents. And among those things that we're celebrating was our joint birthday. And so we're pulled aside. I'm pretty sure it was a McDonald's parking lot mm-hmm. that we were parked in. It was dimly lit, and it was past 7 o'clock, so clearly I'm exhausted. <laughs> I'm so tired. And so what happened was we got out of the cars. We had the normal greeting. It was like me and Casey's dad are dapping each other up. And uh, So then we get out. He opens up the back of the car, and he pulls out this gift. And it's a giant box, and it's an air fryer. <laughs> And the thing that I have to say about my previous experience with air fryers was only that they get used often in TikTok recipes. I am not a big fan of TikTok. So the only association I have is kind of a bad experience with air fryers. So I'm like, great, thanks. (laughs) So essentially, I remember being kind of a butt and saying like, awesome, you got us another oven. (laughs) He said that to my parents. Yeah, (laughs) it wasn't great. Um, However... Well, actually, you know that feeling that you get on a Christmas morning and your grandparents got you a pair of clothes that you definitely don't want? It's exactly how I felt with that air fryer. Um, And I remember the whole ride home, I was kind of chirping in Casey's ear about how much I hate air fryers because all I know about is TikTok. Um, But little did I know that air fryers are incredible. Can I get an amen if you like air fryers in here? Come on. And so... uh, Kelly and Krista, if you guys are listening to this on SoundCloud, I'm sorry that I was not grateful for the air fryer. I use it probably every day right now. In fact, this morning, I used it to make French toast sticks. So, yeah, cheer if you like French toast sticks. (laughs) Yeah, and so I think that many of us can have preconceived notions about things that we don't have a whole lot of experience with. Like me and the air fryer, I thought it was going to be bad, but it turned out it is probably the most used kitchen appliance that we have right now. I thought it was purposeless. And the same can be true for many of us in the way that we view marriage. Whether it's assumptions that are better or worse than the reality of what it actually is, I think many of us in this room have unrealistic expectations. Yeah, so over the last couple of weeks, we've been in our dating series. If you've missed out, please go back and listen to them. We talked about love and dating, and last week we talked about sex, and tonight we're going to talk about marriage to conclude our series. So marriage is the end goal, as we learned a couple of weeks ago when it comes to dating, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't prepare for what's to come after the wedding day. So marriage is a lifetime commitment, if you didn't know, and something should be understood about the gravity of what marriage truly is. Marriage can be really, really great if it's done well, but if it's done poorly, there's a lot of disadvantages that can happen in our lives. 
So in our society, we feel like marriage is a lot about me, me, me. What can I gain through this? What can I accomplish? How can I come on out on top? How can I win the arguments? And just a lot about me, myself, and I. And people getting married a lot of the times aren't necessarily getting married for the right reasons. Maybe they're just getting married because they don't think they could find anyone better than the person they're with. Or maybe people get married because they had a kid together and they know that that'd be best for the kid. And some people don't even get married. They just live together long enough until they're common law married. And it's likely that a lot of us in this room, just based on the number of us here, have grown up with unhealthy views of marriages or have been the, um, or have experienced the firsthand uh, effects of what divorce can look like. And while still some of us maybe have this glorified, happily ever after kind of thought when we think about marriage, and you can see the evidence of that in our culture as well. But the unfortunate side of statistics is that roughly 50% of the people in this room that plan to get married, that they will experience at least one divorce in their lifetime. Our goal tonight is to give you guys a proper understanding of how marriage works so that we can set up this next generation for what God's design of marriage is supposed to look like. So even if you're in here and you don't believe in Jesus, we're hoping that you would receive something tonight about God's love for you and why God cares so deeply about marriage. Yeah, that's good. So tonight we're going to be reading out of Genesis 2. And we're going to go back and look at the very first marriage relationship and what God's heart is for marriage itself. So in Genesis 1, we get this bird's eye view of how God created the world. He put all of the things in the earth, that, like the birds of the sky, the fish of the sea, everything that moves along the ground. And the climax of the creation story is when God creates the first humans to take care of his perfect world. And in Genesis 2, the story quickly zooms in on Adam, the first human. God breathed life into him in the Garden of Eden. And if you didn't know, Eden in the original Hebrew language means delight. So can you imagine it's you plus the creator of the universe in a place that he said is perfectly delightful? How amazing is that? So in Genesis 1, we see a constant refrain of it is good. After everything that God made, he saw it to be good. But in Genesis 2 is the first time that he saw that something wasn't good. He said, it was not good that man should be alone. So let's read this. This is in Genesis 2, verses 15 through 25. And if you don't have your Bibles, it'll be on the screen behind me. So it says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You must surely eat of every tree in the, of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you will eat of it, you will surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock, to the birds in the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed it up in the place with flesh. And that rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and the wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. <laughs> Jesus, we just love you so much, God. We're so thankful um, that you would just give us this imagery of what it looks like to be married, God, through Adam and Eve's story. I pray that you would just speak through both me and John tonight. Um, 
and that you would just be a part of it all, that you would just give us more and more um, glimpses of what your love looks like for us and how we can um, just reflect that in our marriages, Lord. We love you so much and just pray all your name. Amen. Amen. So the main thing we want you guys to take away tonight is this. Marriage is a gift from God that is worth doing well. So similarly to the rest of this series, a lot of the information that we're sharing with you tonight is based on a book by John Mark Comer. It's called Loveology, and we are super thankful to get to use it as a resource. He's a super smart guy, and we're going to quote him a lot. Um, but our aim for tonight is to answer this question, what is marriage for? So we personally see four different reasons in Genesis 2 that God created marriage for. The first one is in verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So the first reason here is friendship. So as you can see, it was not good that Adam was alone. From the very beginning of the human race, we were not created to be by ourselves. So we're made in the image of God, right? And God exists in this web of relationships. For all of eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have been existing, mutually loving one another and mutually intimate with one another as well. And we as humans were created to reflect that. So Adam and the rest of us were quite literally hardwired for friendships. God wanted Adam to have companionship so bad that he literally took out his rib in order to create a spouse that was fit for him. The English word here we see for Eve's creation is helper. So please don't get caught up on this word. We will dig into that more into the next reason. It is not inferior at all. So just wait for that. So don't tune out. What's important to note here is that Adam needed help. He needed a partner in life and he needed a friend. So this fact that Adam needed a friend actually um, kind of dismisses this point. Sometimes we think that we're like, oh, all I need is God, which is great. It's a great idea in theory, but God never actually said that. All Adam had was God. That's all he had. But God still said that it wasn't good for man to be alone. He still said that man needed companionship. So hear me out, just for all you people who maybe don't want to get married someday, this doesn't mean that everybody has to get married. There are several opportunities to have deep and vulnerable relationships with people. And we see several men and women in the Bible and all across our world who have deep relationships with one another who are um, reflecting the image of, that we see in the Trinity. But we need relationships, romantic or otherwise. But marriage is just one of the ways that we see that close relationship with, with within the people of the Trinity um, that we can reflect personally because we are married. So we're going to talk a little bit about our companionship. So John is my favorite person, and I'm very thankful that I married my best friend. That is all true. But that doesn't mean that marriage is always butterflies and rainbows. There are a lot of times that John and I snip at each other for virtually no reason. <laughs> we get in the dumbest little arguments. Actually, in front of a lot of you, that's probably happened several times. Um, just last week, we were arguing about Perry the Potipus and Scooby-Doo for like no reason, but the argument went on for at least 10 minutes. It doesn't matter. We're not going to dig up that hatchet. So the main reason we get into these arguments, though, is because John thinks he's right. And like, I know I'm right, right? So like, it's really easy for us to get in these arguments. There was actually a time earlier this week in LTC, it was yesterday, uh, that we were, I was teaching on the Old Testament and the timeline, and Casey, for some reason, felt like I forgot to mention something, so she interjected, and clearly it was kind of perturbing to me. I was like, great, thanks. But uh, while I kind of thought it was a little bit pointless. It wasn't. Clearly she knew it wasn't. Uh, and the way that 
typically all resolve some of this conflict or diffuse the tension is by saying, hey, you guys want to see mom and dad fight right now? He does it a lot. Like, even when we're by ourselves at home and we'll be, like, getting in an argument, he'll, like, puff up his chest and be like, are we going to fight right now? <laughs> and he diffuses any argument that we might have or might continue to have by saying that. And I know it seems like such a silly little thing, but by John doing that all the time, it shows that he has this huge desire to just make me laugh because he cares so much about the friendship that we have way more than any stupid disagreement that we could ever have. Over the last couple of years, we've been able to have this bond as friends before we started dating, dating, and now as a married couple, we love to be friends with one another, and we know that it could have made our marriage a lot worse if we weren't friends with one another. So we're thankful for the times that we make each other laugh. But friendship isn't just about making each other laugh or doing silly activities with one another. Those things are really, really important in friendship. But within marriage, it looks like experiencing all the really high highs and all the really low lows. At the end of the day, when I am drained and just emotionally exhausted, John is the person that I'm so lucky that I get to talk to him about those things. But he's also the person that might be causing those lows, right? But like, it's cool that I get to depend on him in that friendship and that bond that we get to create. And as followers of Christ, our, marriage and friend, our friendships in marriage can look a lot deeper than that. So Timothy Keller says it like this. Spiritual friendship is eagerly helping one another love, serve, and resemble God in deeper and deeper ways. So as husband and wife, we should be pushing one another closer to Christ every single day, helping one another know our Savior better and resembling God through the way that we have the opportunity to lay our lives down for each other, even when it's not always fun. I need John to call me out when I'm not acting like Jesus. I need him to point me back to Jesus in those moments where I'm, where I'm turning my, my face away from him. So if you don't have friends in this room that encourage you and challenge you to be more like Jesus, highly recommend getting more friends to point you closer to Jesus. But John loves to help me be the person that God is creating me to be. And that is what we should strive for with our spouse. So for all the married people in the room, and I know there's a lot, it's important to remember that friendship with your spouse is a gift from God, and we need to honor that gift. So if you haven't taken the time recently to be intentionally friends with one another, we just want to challenge you to do that. Ask them about their days. Ask them how they're emotionally doing, and share with them also. And then do fun things together. Maybe learn how to do new things. Maybe partake in the hobbies that they're already enjoying. But do it together and actually be friends with one another. And that goes for the dating couples as well. Um, find time right now to have these authentic conversations in your lives where you're just truly yourself because that's going to set you up really well for what friendship could look like inside of your future marriage. But also, if you're dating in this room, you, we need to be asking ourselves this question, is this person my best friend? When looks fade and status changes, which they will, will this person be the person I enjoy being around the most? And if you're not in a dating relationship at the moment, my challenge to you is to seek deep, healthy friendships right now because we can't do this thing called life alone. We need people who truly know us and love us and vice versa. But we have to be willing to let these people call us out. We have to be willing to let these people point us back to Jesus. And if you get married one day, it'll point you in the right direction for what a friendship could look like inside of marriage. Who knows? You might even befriend your future spouse while you're trying to make more friends. So... I mean, there's benefits, but a friendship within your marriage is so important. Okay, but without it, without it, it's really hard to lean on one another when we have to navigate our calls, which brings us to our second reason for marriage. Yeah, the second reason is to garden. It's gardening. So in verse 15, 
It says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So essentially, the first thing that God does with Adam is to make him the head groundskeeper in the garden. God's assignment of gardening to Adam was his way of saying, now get up and do something with what I've given you. This was Adam's calling. The way that we understand calling today, usually we talk about it in a way that we refer to vocation or what we do for our career. But usually, I don't think that we look at calling as the way that God is to draw us closer to his creation and use the raw materials that he's provided us. And while this is part of calling, uh, we, need, we should really understand that our calling is to care for our little corner of Eden. While calling does refer to occupation, it is greater than that. Calling also refers to how we can bring the kingdom of God to where we're at at the moment. And as Christians, we're called to make disciples of all nations. So if you simply can't make disciples in the place that you're at, it's not your call. This doesn't necessarily mean that you're called to full-time ministry, however. So if you're planning on being a doctor or a teacher or a trash collector, do that, but bring Jesus with you. The question we should be asking ourselves is, in order to understand my calling, what was I put on earth to do, and what am I good at? Answering these questions should guide us towards our gardening projects. And once we find calling, we're supposed to work as if we're working unto God. That means doing everything that we do well. It's a sacred command what our calling is that God has given us, working with all of our might to tend our gardens so that we can bear as much fruit as possible in the very short amount of time that we have on this earth. And so once we get to marriage, we should also share in our callings together in a mutual kind of way. Healthy marriages are built around this mutual calling, where both people are pursuing connected goals. And for most people, that doesn't mean that you're going to work the same job, but luckily, Casey and I have the luxury of working together. Mutual calling means pursuing and running after the set of goals together, which sometimes can get really tiring, which brings us to the really fun part. Remember when God made a helper for man? Well, in Hebrew, the word is etzer. It's spelled ezer, but it's pronounced etzer. I looked it up, so you can trust me. <laughs> and it's also translated to partner, one who comes alongside to help achieve a goal. The same word is actually used for God sometimes in the Psalms when they talk about warfare. So to many of us, we can look at this word etzer and think that our only job as the etzer is to only serve someone else's calling and, and their efforts. But I want you to know tonight that that word means helper and partner. It's not inferior or an employee of. It's actually meant to be equal, somebody who walks alongside with. So this helper is someone that you love and respect and work to accomplish both their mission and yours. They're there to provide aid when you need it. So do you see now why mutual calling is so important inside of marriage? Our spouse is the person that helps us shoulder the weight of our calling and holds us up in their arms when we're too tired to fight anymore. So imagine with me for a moment, Casey and I are just dating. We did do that. We did do that at one point. But my calling, I feel like God has called me to the Middle East to start a coffee shop. And my calling is to stay in Cedar Falls specifically and be an educator to the children and to show Jesus' love that way. So although maybe both of our jobs are to show Jesus to people, which is part of calling, it becomes a little bit more difficult when you separate yourselves. So in this scenario, 
I like Casey a lot. She's beautiful, she's smart, she's funny, which is not just in this scenario. I think all <laughs> these things right now. But most importantly, she laughs at all my jokes, which makes me feel really loved. So I'm just going to go for it, even though it may not make the most sense. And then eventually, once we get married and try to have to figure out where we're going to live, one of us is going to be disappointed and have to say no to what we feel like God is calling us to do. Yeah, so the whole reason, like she said, it doesn't make sense is location too. So calling isn't just what you do, how you serve God, but it's also where you are. So many of us in this room are college students, and in this season, it's kind of hard to say what we're going to do after college. Like, I know a lot of us have a pretty loose plan, but it's not always where. And it's important to know that marriage is not just how you achieve a happily ever after. Marriage is bigger than that. It's a means to an end, and it exists for something larger than itself. Marriage won't actually fix all of the problems in your life, it's unfortunate to say. The thing that one of my friends has told me is that marriage magnifies life. It means that your highs get higher and your lows get lower because you have to carry the weight of somebody else too. So what this means is maybe we should talk to our romantic partners about what they could envision for their lives for the next few years. You don't have to have it all figured out right away, but it is useful to talk about it first. So anyway, John Mark Comer says this to the ladies in the room. So ladies, listen up. Women, don't marry a man without a gardening project. No matter how charming or romantic or handsome or spontaneous or stylish he is, if he isn't a gardener, how will you respect him? If he isn't doing anything with his life that matters for God's kingdom, how will you partner with him? If he isn't going anywhere, how will you follow him? And if his life is just about the day-to-day -day kind of pleasures, how will you entrust your future and your calling to him? That's a hard word. And men, don't think you're off the hook because he also says something to you. Men, don't wear, marry a woman who doesn't want to be your sir, your partner in life. No matter how smart or sexy or funny or interesting she is, if she doesn't want to help you in the kingdom work, how will your marriage ever be more... <laughs> about more than your marriage. Nice. Keep going. If she doesn't believe in you, how will you ever trust her? If she doesn't want to follow God's calling on your marriage, how will you dream, try, fail, and succeed with her? How will you ever leave the world a better place than you found it? So the question here is, can this person really garden with me? When life gets hard and I become discouraged, do they have the depth of soul and relationship with Jesus to point me back to his love? Gardening is about putting some boots on and grabbing a shovel and getting some work done in order to make a world. And fortunately for us, at the end of the day, we get to go home and relax and take the boots off, which leads us to the next reason for marriage. Sexuality. <laughs> So this is in verse 24 and 25. It says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother to hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. So Adam and Eve were friends. Yes, they were partners as well, but they were also lovers. 
So Pastor Derek shared last week about sex. That was how it was made for husband and wife to enjoy within the context of marriage. And he also pointed out that having sex was one of the first commands that God ever gave, that humanity was sexual before we were sinful. God created the human body. No part of the body was created by accident, right? God didn't see Adam and Eve having sex in the garden and was like, what the heck, what are you doing? That's not what those are for, right? No, no, God didn't do that. God designed sex. So in case anybody needs to hear this tonight, sex is a good thing. It's a wonderful gift of pleasure inside the covenant of marriage. So if you're here and you want to get married so you can have sex, know that that's not selfish or sinful or shallow because that's one of the reasons why God created marriage, as long as it is not the only reason you want to get married. Not only is this a gift of pleasure, but sex is also designed to hold two people together. John Mark Comer says it this way, God created marriage as the context for your sexuality, and the inverse is also true. He created sexuality as the glue to hold marriage together. So in the context of a dating relationship, this is why it is so hard to break up with someone who we have a sexual bond with, right? Because we are literally, sex was literally created to hold you two together. And that's also why it can hurt so bad when you break up with that person because it literally feels like glue is being ripped apart from one another. In verse 24, it says that Adam and Eve became one flesh. And last week we learned that the Hebrew word for one flesh is ikad, which means fused together at the deepest levels. So when a husband and wife get married and have sex, they become fused together at the deepest levels. The difference between, or the line between man and woman gets blurred. And a cod is when you are most intimately known by another person. And the only relationship that can ever be strong enough to hold this deep level of intimacy is the one between a husband and a wife. And within your marriage, you get to truly know someone and to be truly known by that person as well, flaws and all. You choose to be fully theirs, and they get to be fully yours, which is such a powerful thing inside of marriage. And in today's world, our view of sex has become more and more distorted as we're just seeing this as just an object. In our culture, we idolize sex, and we see this pattern of trying to fill this God-sized hole in our lives with things that can only be filled with Jesus. So Jesus is the only one who can satisfy us. So when and if you're married, have sex. Celebrate the closeness that God has allowed you to have with another person, but know that God is the one who sustains us. Your partner and sex will never fulfill you. The God-sized hole in your life will only be filled by God himself, and it will never compare to the unconditional love of our Father. So if you're not married or don't plan to be married, Remember that sex, while it's a good thing, if you never have sex, that's okay. It doesn't need to be an ultimate thing in our lives. In addition to sex being a gift from God, it can also be a very practical means to help fulfill the fourth reason for marriage. Which is family. So in verse 28, it says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So when God says to be fruitful and multiply, he's giving mankind a safe environment to share the same kind of communal love that the Trinity has experienced for all of eternity. God values family so much that the first commandment he ever gave to the first humans was to be fruitful and multiply. So many years after this first command in scripture, we live in a time that has a spectrum of value over family. And on one side, 
is hookup culture, which is where things like Tinder are primarily used. It's this way of meeting as many people as quick as possible and only finding, only connecting with those who we find the most attractive. And the sad reality is that there's a large portion of children that are born into the world because of this. Some studies in 2013 say that 20% of pregnancies in the US end in abortion. One in three kids goes to bed without a dad. And the number of children born out of wedlock to women under the age of 30 is nearly 50% for most of our country. And this is clearly not the heart of God towards family. Then on the other hand, there's a large group of people who idolize family, and this is particularly an issue inside of the church. If you're a young married couple in here, I want you to remember how many times you've been asked when you're going to start having kids. It's almost a way as if we subliminally said that if you don't have a family, you're not welcome in the club. So this isn't only a problem inside of the church, however. When people don't find their identity in their relationship with Jesus, they start to turn towards their family and especially their children. To many parents, kids become their gods. They find satisfaction in how well their kids perform in either school or sports or anything in between. And so we oftentimes will see a detached mother who's driving their minivan to soccer practice in meantime, we have a frustrated father who's emotionally unavailable because of his so-called sacrifice that he's made for family. And usually, parents or families will sacrifice what their whole family is on the altar of being family. They find their identity in their children. And that seems kind of twisted, doesn't it? And as you've potentially witnessed this in your life or those around you, you may have thought, I'm never going to be like that. Well, that's not God's heart for it either. Family is an incredibly important part of our world. In this current generation, we would do right by ourselves if we started to think about how we stewarded our families as we start to grow them. And in this place where we have to share a love that is reflective of the love that the Godhead had for all of eternity, it's where we can be free to execute God's first commandment to be fruitful and multiply. And with this being said, not everybody needs to have kids. Some people in this room may feel like they may not want it, or some people, rather sadly, may never be able to have kids. So I just want to say that right now. It's not sinful to not have kids. There's nothing wrong with you if you can't have them. God hasn't turned away from you. But there are other ways that we can fulfill this calling towards family. So for those of us who do want kids someday, we shouldn't idolize our families by putting them in their achievements above how we find our identity in Christ. So don't skip church because your child has a baseball tournament that weekend. Personally, Casey and I want to be at church every single Sunday. We care so much about the family of God that it's just as important as our family together is. While not idolizing our families, we should remember to love our children with correction as they go off the path of Jesus. And when they become old enough, we should send them out to complete the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations. And this is how we are to be fruitful and multiply. And for those who might not want kids, you're not off the hook of family either. Uh, you still have a family in the kingdom of God who desperately needs your spiritual mentorship like a loving and gentle parent would to their children. We should all have spiritual sons and daughters in the faith, and in fact, Casey and I have a few of them in this room tonight. 
where we've influenced their life a little bit. And even though we don't have children yet, we really believe that God has placed you in our lives so mm -hmm. that we can steward your relationship with him well. And so tonight, become someone's spiritual mentor. Seek mentors and lead your friends in the way of Jesus so that they can make disciples who make disciples. So some of you may have been sitting in here thinking this whole time, that's all cool and all, but what if biblical marriage isn't for me? If you don't want to get married or really just don't see that as an option in your life, I have some great news for you because that is a completely, there's a completely valid option that is highly celebrated. So Paul addresses this in 1 Corinthians. This is starting in verse 6. He says, now as a concession, not a command, I say this, I wish that all were as I myself am. But each has its own gift from God, one of a kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single, as I am. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. He continues on in verse 32, saying, I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things and how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So Paul is actually encouraging everyone he's around to be single. Your work with God when you're, in, when you're single can be undivided. You can give yourself wholly to the mission of God. Married people can't do that. Most evenings, John has to take his mind off of discipleship and put it onto me, onto what we're making for dinner that night, well, what he's making for dinner that night, or any other emotional crisis I might, might be having in the moment. His attention is taken away from the guys in his small group or what, whoever else might be taking his attention away. And when we have kids one day, I bet our attention is going to be very needed for them because I hear they need a lot of that. So I'm sure we're going to have even more undivided attention. Singleness is a godly thing. It is incredibly virtuous. So you can do so much more in your season or maybe even lifetime of singleness. So if you're single, I want to speak to you for a second. Please don't waste this time of singleness. Please don't wish it away because you are in the most effective season of your ministry that you will ever be in. When you're in a season of singleness, you are in your prime. So think about it like this way. When athletes are in their, in their time of prime, when they're really good at whatever sports they're doing, they don't just sit there counting down the days until they are no longer in their prime, until they can't run anymore. They're actively taking advantage of the shape that they're in right now. And we need to do the same thing. We need to take advantage of the time that God has given us when we're single. Looking back, I really wish I would have spent more time giving myself wholly to the mission of God before, instead of thinking about who my future spouse was going to be or all of my next steps in career or next steps in life and what that could look like. God has given you the opportunity to devote yourself wholly to the mission, so please take advantage of that. And if you're married, and if you want to be married and you wish or you wish to pursue marriage, Know that both options are great options, but you need to take advantage of your time of singleness. If you wish to pursue marriage one day, know that it's not a bad thing, and it is something that we can do so well if we try. Marriage is a gift from God that is worth doing well. That's good. There may be some people in here tonight, worship team, if you want to come up. Maybe some people in here um, that aren't married who might be terrified of what forever can look like for them. 
And maybe you're thinking along those same lines that you're a person who is potentially paralyzed by the fear of committing to a lifetime with somebody else. Or maybe you're already married, but because of the way that culture has conditioned you, you're expecting paradise. I just can't wait until I'm with this person, and we're just going to have this, like we've been saying, happily ever after. And unfortunately, that hasn't become all that you thought it might. Or perhaps you're thinking, I don't even believe in this Jesus, and now these people are telling me that I should date intentionally and get married and have kids, which all seems a little wild to you. But instead of these questions, I think there's only one that really matters. And I think that one is, why does marriage matter to Jesus? It becomes, it matters because marriage is more of a direct reflection of Jesus's relationship with his church. Jesus laid down his life for his church, being his bride, and in doing that, he got to show us how to do marriage well. And through the sacrifice that he shows us, he is the perfect friend. He's always there in the highs and the lows, and we know that he's the best friend anyone could ever have because he is faithful to his every promise. Marriage is so important to Jesus because he values intimacy with his bride. When he asks for our hand, it isn't a selfish gesture, but instead, he's a gentleman who serves his bride's needs and shows her all of the love through his generous intimacy. And Jesus represents the master gardener in this relationship as well by the way that he cultivates the ground around you. His strength in pushing the plow to loosen the soil is the thing that illustrates his great love for you. Think about how you got here tonight. Had Jesus not been involved behind, this, in, behind the scenes of your life, would you be here right now? If he wasn't planting seeds in your life and allowing those around you to water them, how could you grow? God's view on family is more comprehensive than just having children. God has given you the chance to recreate yourself through the mentorship of his children and your heavenly family. The son's love is so great that he gave his life for you. The father's love is so awesome that he forgives you of your sins. And the Holy Spirit's love is so great that he allows you to look more like him. Marriage is the way that God best expresses his love for his bride by giving himself up for her and caring for her, her every need, which is every one of us. The honest truth about relationships today is that the odds are that most of us have not dated well, or maybe we haven't even pictured marriage with God's design. And many of us have fallen to this idea of happily ever after when it comes to marriage, but I regret to inform you that it's not always that. We can trace all of mankind's hardships back to this same original perfect delight in Eden. When Adam and Eve ate of the tree was when mankind was separated from God. But because he loves his creation so dearly, he did something drastic. He gave his one and only son to recreate mankind. And this kind of recreation is what we're talking about. When we say yes to living our lives for Jesus, he allows us to participate in this process with him, to use our marriages and other relationships to reflect the same loving sacrifice that Jesus made for us. So if you would stand with us.
would happen if we, as a group of young believers, committed ourselves to pursuing relationships with intentionality and genuinely wanted to do it well. In a culture where sex and romance and children are all idolized, we decided to look different. To say yes to God's purposes for marriage without forgetting the giver of it all. We don't live in the garden anymore like Adam and Eve did, but we are redeemed so that we can work the ground just like we're commanded. We can go out and spread the name of Jesus by the way that we maintain our relationships, romantic or otherwise. We can have deep intimacy with our King. We can be like Jesus to those around us in the way that we might parent our future children or spiritual children. And we can submit to Jesus in his new creation. And as a group on campus, let's be a people that are intentional about who we are with and what we are doing and what we are pursuing. We'll hold each other's arms up in the battle for the gospel. I encourage you to look around at the people in this room. This is the family that you belong to. These are the people who are going to keep your arms up as you pursue God's best for yourself. There's a couple of ways to respond tonight. The first is we just wanted to extend the opportunity to anyone in here who desires to have a relationship with Jesus. So the same God that we've been talking about, the same God who gives these beautiful gifts to his children, gave us the best gift that we could ever imagine. He gave his son to die in your place. Jesus came to earth, lived the perfect life, and died the perfect death. He took the punishment for every wrongdoing every single person in this room has ever done or ever will do. Not only that, but he rose from the grave, and he defeated death, and now sits at the right hand of the Father. And because of that sacrifice and that provision, we have the opportunity to walk in relationship with him. So if you guys would all bow your head and close your eyes with us, we just want to give those people the opportunity to respond tonight, to say yes to Jesus. We do this every week at Chi Alpha because we believe so much in this relationship. So if you feel like that's you and you want to say yes to Jesus and pursue a relationship with him, I'm going to ask that you would be so bold as to raise your hand right now. And this is just a signal between you and God that you're ready to dive all in. We just are so thankful for the cross, God. We are so thankful that you would die in our place, that you would give us the best gift ever imaginable to take every single punishment away from us, God, to be able to walk in relationship with you for all of eternity. Jesus, I just thank you that you would lay your life down, God, and that we get to continue to remember that we are yours and that's never going to change. God, that you love us so dearly that you have laid your life down for your bride. Thank you, Jesus. The other way to respond tonight is for those of us who may be idolizing marriage or maybe the benefits that come with it, or for those of us who would have had a really poor representation of what marriage can look like in our lives. And we believe that God wants to change the way that we think about marriage to properly orient our hearts towards it. So I want to give you an opportunity to commit to pursuing God and his relationships and try to do them well, whether it's in romance or through biblical friendships. So if you wish to cultivate the ground around you and to share the work that God is doing, put your hands out like this as I pray for us to commit to it. Lord Jesus, we are so thankful for this opportunity to dive into what marriage looks like for us tonight, Lord. We ask that you would help us to be a good bride to you first of all, Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would help us to pursue godly friendships and relationships around us. Lord, that you would correct our hearts in any ways that have been misled in the past. Lord Jesus, we love you so much. And all of this we pray in your name. Amen.